Well, good morning, church family. Uh, this morning, I've got good news and I got some bad news. Uh, which do you guys want to hear first? Let's take a poll. Let's take a poll. I know we're Baptists. I'm still going to ask you to raise your hand. Um, how many of you would rather hear bad news first before good news? Raise your hand. That's you. Smart people. Okay. How many of you would rather hear the good news first? Raise your hand. Okay. We need to see you at the end, the altar. Um, no, no. I, yeah. You, you probably put your milk before your cereal too, don't you? No. Um, is this some things that are right? No. The majority of people said bad news, so that's where I'm going to start. <clears throat> the bad news is Pastor Derek's still on vacation, and the student minister is preaching today. Uh, so, you know what? It's too late to back out. So, if you're here. Now, the good news is, there's good news. The good news is uh, student ministers usually preach shorter sermons. So, I actually had some people clap for that in the first service. So, thank you. Um, I said usually. No, about today. <laughs> um, but they actually, they did a study uh, where they asked people if they preferred the bad news or the good news first. And it was the majority. 78% of people said they want to hear bad news first. And most of us make that choice because what we hope is that the good news is going to outweigh, it's going to overshadow the bad news, and we're going to end on a good note, right? And oftentimes we, we have to know the bad news before we can really see what's so good about the good news. And, and that's how the gospel of Jesus is. That word gospel, it, it literally means good news. It's, it's the good news that Jesus has saved us from our sin and he's given us the right relationship with God. But, but in order to understand the good news of the gospel, we need to know the bad news. In fact, we will never fully know why the good news of the gospel is so good until we know why the bad news is so bad. If the gospel's the solution, we got to first know the problem. So this morning, that's where we're going to go. We're going to look at the bad news, and I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We've been in this message series. If you've been with us, uh, it's called Bible 101. We're looking at the passages in the Bible that we think every Jesus follower should know. And we have seen throughout this series some really good passages. We have seen some really encouraging passages. And then we come to the one today. And... Uh, I joked with Pastor Derek, I think we should title this message, The Saddest Passage in the Bible. I mean, this is a tough one. And I don't think it's a coincidence they gave it to the student guy, but hey. Um, <laughs> Pastor Derek, he, he said a while back, he made me laugh out loud. He, he said, he was talking about another passage. He said, these verses are not verses you're going to find down at Mardell's. Uh, these are not coffee cup verses or Christmas card verses. But you know what? These verses are the words of God. You know, how, regardless of how we feel about them, even though they're tough, these are some of the most important words in the Bible for us to understand and grasp today, I'm convinced. And that's why this passage was picked. That's why this passage is the bad news of the gospel. And the passage I'm talking about is Romans 1, 18 through 32. If you, if you know about Romans, you know it's, it's one of the most famous books, most popular books of the Bible. Uh, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. It's his longest letter, his most quoted letter. And, and I really think we can't overstate the impact and influence that this book has had through history. I mean, I mean, it has influenced some of the most important Christians and movements in the history of the world. Just to give you one example, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was studying the first chapter of Romans, when his eyes were opened to the gospel, it led to the reformation of the church. And, and, and that's a big deal. And it continues to change lives today. The, the theme of this book, the book of Romans, is the gospel. 
Paul tells us right at the very beginning, Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans is all about the gospel. And the first three chapters, what they do is they set up the good news of the gospel by explaining the bad news. Paul explains how, how the Gentiles and the Jews, how everyone is, is guilty of sin, how everyone deserves God's judgment, and how everyone is in desperate need of a Savior. That's the bad news. We have rejected God. And Romans 1 explains that more clearly than anywhere else. So let's, let's just walk through our passage, and then, and then we're going to break it down and see what it means, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I, I tried telling you, it's, it's fun stuff. But, but Paul gives us the bad news first. It's this. We have rejected God with unbelief. Uh, unbelief is at the root of all of the world's problems, including my problems and your problems. So before we can see why the gospel is the answer, we need to understand why unbelief is the problem. And this passage tells us three things clearly about unbelief. Here's the first. Unbelief suppresses the truth. Look at verse 18. Paul, he's not warming up. He gets right into it by starting with the wrath of God. Now, Wrath is not a very popular idea. Um, in the world's eyes, wrath is non-existent. If God exists, then he is like a grandpa in the sky. He, he loves everyone, he judges no one, and he just wants me to be happy and to feel good about myself. But it's not just the world. See, wrath is really not that popular in the church either. We don't like to think about it or talk about it too much. Uh, in fact, entire denominations and churches today have eliminated any talk of sin or judgment or hell or wrath. One of my favorite songs uh, to sing in church is the song, In Christ Alone. Y'all familiar with that one? Yeah, I think it's one of the clearest gospel-centered songs to ever be written. And there's this line. There's this line in the song, and it says something you don't hear a lot in worship songs. But it says, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Several years ago, there was this particular denomination that was updating their hymnal. 
and they wanted to add that song. But they wanted to change the lyric, that lyric from the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. And Keith Getty and Stuart Townend, who, who wrote the song, they've written a lot of great songs we sing, including one today, they actually rejected their request because they understand something about what the Bible clearly teaches. God's love is magnified because his wrath was satisfied. See, see we cannot have God's love apart from his wrath. Tim Keller, he's an author and pastor. He's written some super helpful books I would encourage you to check out. He explains it like this. People say, I believe in a God of love, not a God who gets angry. If you have a God who never gets angry, you can't have a God of love. Because if you never, ever get angry about anything, you don't love anything. But if you love and you see the thing you love threatened, you're angry. Think about it like this. Imagine you see uh, someone harming your child. Or you see someone harming any innocent child, what are you going to feel inside? You know, down in the south, we say you'd be madder than a wet hen. Have you ever seen a wet hen? Neither have I. But apparently they're mad. That's all I know. That's all I know. Um, but think about that. I mean, if you were to see someone harming, just an, an act of injustice done towards an innocent child, you're going to feel something. <laughs> You're going to rightly feel some anger, some wrath. I mean, if we as sinful people can feel that and it be okay, then how much more can our perfect heavenly Father? God's wrath is not a hissy fit. It's not a temper tantrum like we think of wrath. God's wrath is his fair and just response to sin and evil in the world. A God who does not have wrath towards evil and injustice, but he just turns a blind eye and ignores it, that would not be a very loving and good God. See, God's wrath is not the problem. The problem is that we are a part of the injustice and evil that his wrath is against. Verse 18 tells us, it says God's wrath is, is revealed because we have suppressed the truth in our unbelief. What does that mean? What does it mean to suppress the truth? Well, Paul explains, he tells us that God has clearly revealed himself to everyone. How? Through the things that have been made. So through creation, God is screaming out to us that there is a creator, right? Creation begs for a creator. Verse 20 tells us his attributes have been clearly perceived. Everyone knows God. Everyone knows God. So here's what that means. There is no such thing as an atheist. There's not. Everyone, everywhere, of all time, knows that God exists, but here's how we respond. We reject God and we suppress the truth. One of my favorite pastors to listen to, J.D. Greer, he's a, also the president of the SBC, he explained it, suppressing the truth, like trying to hold a beach ball under the water. You ever done that in a pool or something? You're holding that beach ball and inflated with air, and no matter how much you try to hold it down, the air inside continues to force it back to the surface. We can try and push down the truth about God, but deep down, we all know. And those who don't know, they don't know because they don't want to know. During World War II, the uh, first city with a concentration camp that Allied forces liberated was called Ordruff, Germany. And when American soldiers came on the scene, what they saw was, was horrible. Just hundreds and hundreds of bodies piled up. When General Patton arrived, the story says that he couldn't believe that people in this town were okay with this, that they knew that this atrocity was going on, but, but they denied it. They denied any knowledge of it. So, so Patton went and he got the mayor. He got the mayor's wife, brought him out to see it. 
He went and got every able-bodied person in the town to dig the graves and bury the dead. And that night they had a funeral. After the funeral was over, Patton received word that the mayor and his wife had hanged themselves. And they left a note that said, we didn't know, but we knew. Suppression is not the same thing as ignorance. Suppression means we know the truth, but we refuse to acknowledge it because it it makes us uncomfortable, right? So we subconsciously suppress it. And the Bible makes clear all of us are guilty of this unbelief. But this passage brings up a really important question that I'm often asked by students. It might be the most common question I get from students. What about those who die without ever hearing the gospel? What about the unreached tribe who, who has no Bible, no church, no knowledge of Jesus Well, this has become the go-to passage to help us deal with that question. And and because of the time it takes to wrestle through that, I'm actually going to send out an article this week in our Lifehack email. Uh, Make sure you're signed up for that and check out, look out for the email. Um, but, But here's the bottom line. Look at the end of verse 20 with me. It says, we are all without excuse. No one is going to stand before God one day and say, God, if I'd only known you existed. If I'd only had a little bit more evidence, God, I would have believed in you. And even the most remote people group in the world today knows God, and yet they have rejected him. And some say, man, that's not fair. That's not fair. Here in America, we have all these resources. We have the gospel, and they don't. You know, I, you know, I, I say that's not fair because we have the gospel and all these resources, and we keep them to ourselves. God has blessed us with the gospel so that we can bless the nations. Carl Henry, he he said it best. He said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. This passage should not discourage us. Man, it should motivate us to go, to be more passionate about the Great Commission than ever because every single person in the world today has a problem. It's unbelief. And God has graciously given us the solution. It's the gospel. Here's the second thing we learn about unbelief. Unbelief produces false worship. When we reject God, when we suppress the truth that he's revealed to us, what do we do? Do we just give up religion and stop worshiping? No. The Bible makes clear that we just worship something else. God made us worshipers. We were designed to worship. We cannot not worship. There are these spiritual surveys uh, they take of our nation. And they've revealed this trend. There's this growing group of people in America today, mostly young people, that are what they call spiritual nuns. Not N-U-N, none, but N-O-N-E. And when they're asked about their religion or their spirituality, they simply check the box, none. But we know that that's not true. It's not true. Everyone worships something. Everyone has a religion. Everyone has a God. Even those who don't know it, even those who are totally against religious institutions, they worship. And you can look at our culture and and you can see it. You can see a lot of worship, a lot of passionate worship. We, we see it in sports. We see it in politics. We see it in celebrity culture. We see it in shopping centers. We even see it on our perfectly manicured lawns. And we are devoted people. We are passionate about what we worship. We serve our gods. We're loyal to our religions. And we even tithe. Do you know everybody tithes? They just give to what they're most devoted to. All right, unbelief doesn't lead to non-worship, it leads to false worship. And that's why we see this word over and over in this passage, it's the word exchange. When we reject God, we're trading him out, we're making a deal, and it's not a good one. 
Um, when I was a kid, I loved baseball cards, right? I collected them. I would trade them with friends. And I remember one particular day, one of my friends, he convinced me to trade him my mint condition Barry Bonds rookie card. Now, this was before we, we knew all we now know about Barry Bonds. And at the time, we thought these cards were going to be worth tons of money and they were going to pay for college. And this Barry Bonds rookie card, I mean, this was my prized possession. All right, I had it in the cool little case thing. Um, but I traded it away. I don't know why or how, I don't remember. I just remember I instantly regretted it. I thought it was a bad deal. Guess who's laughing now? No. Um, <laughs> trading God. Trading God is always a bad deal. I mean, who in their right mind would want to do that? Why would anybody give up God for something else? But here's what Romans 1 tells us. We did that. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. And we see it everywhere in Scripture. We often miss it today. Because when we hear the word idol, we're thinking about the golden calf. All right? We're thinking, man, I don't have anything in my closet, a statue or a golden idol that I pull out and pray to and, and worship. So I'm not an idol worshiper. Here's the scary thing. We can make an idol of anything. There's a book, Gospel Trees, and written by Brad Bigney. He defines idolatry like this. An idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. An idol can be anything or anyone that sits in the place of God. Even good things can become idols. See, often what happens, we, we read about it earlier, it's this good desire that grows and becomes an idol. James 1, 14 through 15, Ryan read it, says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let me give you an example of a good desire gone bad. I love uh, my daughter Charlotte. She's about to be two, and, and I want to take care of her. I know that's my responsibility, and I desire for her to grow up safe and, and healthy and to have a good life. And that's a good desire. I don't think anybody's going to fault me for wanting that. But when I love my daughter more than I love God, she becomes an idol. And let me tell you guys, that, that's a real temptation, and you parents know that. And when my child becomes my idol, it's going to manifest itself in all kinds of sin. I'm going to have fear and anxiety over something happening to her or losing her. I'm going to have anger and frustration when she doesn't live up to my impossible standards for her. And ultimately, I'm going to have disappointment and despair when I realize that God did not design us to worship our kids. Here's another example. Maybe your desire, you want to be successful in your career. Again, no one's going to fault you for that. That's great. It's not a bad desire on the surface. But when success becomes your idol, it's going to manifest itself in sin. You might neglect your family and your church because, well, you got to work hard to get to the top, right? You might lash out in anger when someone threatens your path to success. You might even cheat, lie, steal, hurt other people because success rules all. And eventually, you're going to burn out because God did not design us to worship our careers. And we could go on and on here because anything can be an idol, a hobby, a person, a relationship, a possession, a sport, money, the approval of others, physical health, entertainment. 
anything. So how do we know? How can we know what our idols are? How can we know what we worship? Well, again, from the book Gospel Treason, the best way to identify an idol is to follow the trail of your time, your money, and your affections. Think, think about your time for a second. What do you choose to do when you have free time? What do you always make time for? What would you stay up late and wake up early for? Think about your finances. What do you spend money on? What do you save up your money for? Think about your affections. What do you talk about? What do you think about? What do you worry about? What makes you angry or anxious if you don't get it? If you answer those questions honestly and you follow that trail, what you're going to find at the end is a throne. And anything sitting on that throne besides God is an idol. And it's going to mess up your life. And this isn't just a non-Christian thing. This is something all of us struggle with. So we have to be on guard. We have to watch our hearts because God made us to worship him and him alone. So when we reject God in unbelief, when we worship other things in his place, this leads to chaos, it leads to brokenness, and it leads to our third final thing. It's that unbelief results in death. There's this important phrase that gets repeated three times in this passage, and it sounds kind of strange to us. It did to me at first. So we got to examine it in its context. It's this phrase, God gave them up. What does it mean for God to give us up? Well, as you can probably guess, it's not a very fuzzy concept. This same phrase is used in other places in the New Testament to describe someone being handed over to judgment. It's even used to speak of, of Christ giving himself up to death. So the idea here is that we say to God, God, I don't want you. I don't need you. I'm going to do things my way. And God simply says, okay. He gives us what we want. He allows us to experience the consequences of our choices. It's like removing a dam and allowing water to flow its natural course. God removes his hand of restraining grace and he allows us to experience the horror of life apart from him. Man, that's when things go from bad to worse. Paul lists out the exact consequences of our unbelief. It was that long rattling part where you're like, man, this is bad. He gives one specific example and then he gives the list. And look at verse 26 through 27. The specific example that Paul gives to illustrate what happens when we reject God is the practice of homosexuality. He says, men and women gave up natural relations for unnatural ones with the same sex. And we recognize rightly here that this is a tough topic for a couple reasons. Number one, this is a difficult topic because what culture tells us today is totally opposite from what Scripture teaches. In fact, if you hold to the biblical view of sexuality, you will be labeled hateful among other things. The second reason this is a tough topic is because we as Christians have not done a very good job with this issue. I think what happened is over the past several decades, culture has shifted and changed so fast that for a lot of Christians, we were caught flat-footed. And Christians generally did two things. They either lashed out in fear and hate or they openly embraced the new revolution. And as a result, we as Christians, we have hurt a lot of people. And we have damaged our witness. The third reason this is a tough topic is because this is deeply personal for many, including many in this room. Many of us have family members and, and friends who are gay. 
And we know in a room this size, there are some in this room who may be struggling with same-sex attraction. So yeah, it's, it's a tough topic. But those are the exact reasons that we cannot be silent on this either. And this is one of the most important and clearest passages in the Bible on this issue. And again, I'm going to send out an article this week to help you dive into it a little more deeply um, on this topic. So I encourage you to look at it. But let me just share the, the point of these verses in their context. What Paul is doing here is giving us an example of what happens when God is rejected and displaced from the center of our lives. One of the first and biggest consequences of rejecting God is sexual confusion. When we reject God, we depart from his good and perfect design for us. That's what homosexuality is. It's departing from God's original and good design for our sexuality. And that's why Paul uses that language, natural and unnatural. The, the practice of homosexuality, it's a picture of man's rejection of his creator and his design. And that's why Paul uses it here. But what Paul is not saying, what the Bible never says, is that homosexuality is a worse kind of sin or different category of sin from other sexual sins. Homosexuality is sinful and it's contrary to God's design just as premarital sex, extramarital sex, lust, pornography, and all other kinds of sexual immorality are also sinful and contrary to God's design. we got to make that clear. In my time in, in student ministry, I've, I've counseled students who struggled with same-sex attraction. And they came to me with fear, depression, some of them thoughts of suicide. You know, some of them were afraid that their church-attending Christian parents would disown them for being gay. Some of them terrified of going to hell because some pastor told them that homosexuality is an unforgivable sin. Some of them who, who thought the only way for them to find happiness in life was to fully embrace that kind of lifestyle. Listen, guys, we have got to speak the truth in love here. We've got to speak the truth, but we've got to do it in love. The problem with those who struggle with homosexuality is the same problem you and I have. We have all rejected God. And the solution for those who struggle with homosexuality is the same solution that you and I need. It's the gospel. And we may have different struggles. And we may have different sins. But let me tell you, we all need the same Jesus and the same forgiveness. Got to be clear there. Let's look. Last, last part, verse 29 through 32. This is the who's who list of sins where Paul shows us all the different ways that rejection of God manifests itself. And just in case uh, you've been all high and holy up to this point, <laughs> he even throws in disobedience to parents. So he knows, talking about you, all right? It's all of us. It's all of us. And that's Paul's point. All of us have rejected God in sin. And as verse 32 says, clearly, as a result, we deserve to die. We deserve to experience the full wrath of God in eternity in hell. I deserve that. And that's bad news. I think it's as bad as bad news can get. But praise God, the book does not end here. If it did, that would be awful. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote 15 more chapters. And man, i got to share with you what he said. Not all of it, of course. But even though we rejected God... Romans 5.1 says that we can have peace with God through his son Jesus. 
Even though we sinned against him in every way imaginable, Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we deserve eternal death for our sin, Romans 6.23 says that God has given us a free gift of eternal life in Jesus. Even though we earn God's judgment fair and square, Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ And even though we despise God's love, Romans 8, 39 says there's not a single thing in all creation that could ever separate you from the love of Jesus. Even though we rejected God with unbelief, get this, Romans 10, 9 says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Man, the bad news is bad, but let me tell you, the good news is so good. The good news of the gospel triumphs over and far outshines the bad, news, the bad news all day, every day, twice on Sunday. It's awesome stuff. But we got to know the bad news so we can see and savor the good. So our application today is simple. Believe. Believe. If you have never made that decision to follow Jesus, there's nothing you have to do today except believe. Believe in Jesus today and you will be saved from judgment. You'll be forgiven of every sin and you will have eternal life. Don't wait. Believe today. If you're a follower of Jesus already, then then here's your application. Believe. See, the gospel is for Christians too. We never get over it. We never get past it. We only go deeper into it. So whether you've been a Jesus follower for weeks, years, decades, Believe in the gospel again. It's not about trying harder. It's not about getting better. It's about surrendering more to Jesus. You cannot live this Christian life in your own strength. You need the power of the gospel in your life today just as much as you did the moment you were saved. So friends, whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, here's the solution. Let's believe the gospel together.